Open your Bibles, if you would, to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4. We believe when we receive Jesus Christ into our life. We, we believe in our need for a Savior. We believe that He is the Savior, that He did come. He is God in the flesh. He died on the cross in our place. He was buried. He rose again from the dead to bring new life. When we believe and we receive Him as our Savior and our Lord, the Bible tells us that God puts His Spirit in us. His Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in our bodies. I mean, you have to stop a moment and think about that very statement, that very reality. The Holy Spirit. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The Spirit of God who brought order out of chaos. The Spirit of God who superintended creation itself. God bless you. That same Spirit has taken up residence in these lowly, humble bodies. You just have to sit on that for a little while, huh? Try to get your mind around that one. The Spirit of the living God has taken up residence in us. I know people who don't even want to be in the same room with some of us. Right? And that the Spirit of God takes up residence in us. We have this assurance in, in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul testifies this reality in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. He says, We are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. This is great news. I'm not left to my own devices now. It's not, I have to make things happen in my own strength and power. And then most of the time, humanly speaking, I'm exhausted. Isn't that true? But I have the Spirit of God living in me. He's now in control. Isn't it great? He comes in and he says, all right, now I'm in control. Okay. Isn't it nice when someone comes into your life? Or, or ladies, when, when, when dad gets home? And the kids have been driving you crazy all day. And he comes home and he says, all right, the papa is home. And all of a sudden, everything just settles right down. The kids go, yes, sir. And mom goes. The Holy Spirit comes in. He's in control. I can relax. I can exhale. I can go, oh, thank you, God. The things that I panic over, the things that... that I get easily troubled about. I get disturbed over. The Spirit of God's in control. Isn't that wonderful? We are controlled not by the sinful nature anymore, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Aren't you glad that you have the Spirit of Christ? If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, he says, you don't, you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. If you have no resource in your life, if you're constantly frazzled, constantly frustrated, things are out of control, you have cause to wonder, hey, am I even a believer? Do I even know Christ? I, I seem to have no resource, no power, no ability, no peace. Because if he was there you'd experience His power and grace and control. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul's speaking to the, to the Corinthian congregation. Don't you, the you is plural in the, in the Greek text there, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? In other words, not only individually does the Spirit of God live in us, but He inhabits the life of the church. As Alan said earlier, as we were praying for each other, the Spirit of the Lord is here. 
The Spirit of the Lord is here to minister, and we pray for one another uh, in faith, believing that our prayers can make a difference because they're energized by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, now he's speaking again individually to those Corinthian believers. He says, do you not know that your body, individually, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? What a terrific gift from God to receive his spirit, the spirit of life, the spirit of power to live in us. So we know that God's Spirit lives in us. And now that He lives in us, now that He's here, the question comes up, why is He here? What does He do? What's He come for? Has He come to take up residence so that He could just put His feet up on the coffee table and watch the football game this afternoon? What's He come for? He's come for some very specific purposes, which we are going to unpack over the next weeks. But I want to talk to you about the very first reason he comes. He comes, beloved, to assure us. If there is one thing that we need is constant assurance. Would you agree? My wife says to me, do you love me? For 30 years. Do you love me? Am I pretty? Does this dress make me look nice and thin? <laughs> Ooh, I get a little too close there, aren't I? <laughs> I'm going to get it when I get home, boy. <laughs> What's my point? No matter how many times we can encourage each other, we still need what? Constant assurance. We need reassurance. Reassure me that I'm loved. Reassure me that, that I'm the one. Is that true? Can you relate to that? If we're, if we're, if we're new, new in the community, new in the church, this is a, this is a, this is a, this is a dilemma for many, many people who who have to move from this community into another part, either because of work or they can't afford to live here, you know, all the things. And, and if they've been involved in the church, if they've been an active participant in the church, and if they have worked through issues with people in the church, and that's the only way you develop intimacy with one another, is you work through stuff, and you come out the other end, and it's a win-win for everybody. But that's the work of relationships, whether it be a marriage or whatever, right? So if you move away, and, you, and you, you move away from the intimacy and the love and the fellowship that you, that you treasure here, and sometimes we take for granted, and you've got to go find a new church, getting involved in a new church is just arduous work. And, and, and the question is, how do, I, how do I break in? How do I, how do I get in? How, how, can I be accepted and we, that's true at all levels in, in all areas of our life. Isn't that true? It, it's just fundamentally assurance. Am I part? Am I accepted? And it's the Holy Spirit's work to convince us, to assure us that we are accepted in Christ. Not of our own merits, not of our, not of our own efforts and abilities and talents and and all that, it, it, simply in Christ. It's no longer, am I good enough? Do I have to qualify? No, you are qualified. Paul says in Romans 8, 4, I love this verse. Write this reference down, Romans 8, 4. He says, all the requirements of the law are fully met in us through Christ Jesus. All of the requirements of the law are fully met. We qualify in Christ. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to assure us that we are in the family, that we are God's children, that we are part of his family now. And last time we looked at some of the ways in which the Holy Spirit works to assure us, some of the resources. We, we talked about baptism. Why do you get baptized? Because 
because I know that I'm in. I know that I belong. Not that I hope that I belong. I spoke with a family this last week about uh, uh, they have a, a son who's been raised in a Christian home. Godly parents love God. So they asked her son, are you ready? He's about the age to be baptized. Do you want to be baptized? No. Why not? I don't believe. I'm not a believer. But we've raised you. I'm not a believer. I know everything. I understand. In fact, I, I can sit in Pastor Zach's teaching sessions and I understand it all. Makes sense. I just don't believe. Why? I just don't feel like it. I don't feel the need. There's not a perceptible sense of I need to be saved. So I don't need to be baptized. I don't want to be baptized. You know, it's kind of a sidebar. You, you, we, we kind of assume on our kids, just because we raise them in a Christian home, that they're going to be Christians. They've got to come to their own faith. They, most of our kids grow up on, on our, the coattails of our faith. And we make some big assumptions on them when, in fact, they never come to a crisis of faith in their own life and they never see and understand their need to commit to Jesus Christ. So why do we get baptized? Because the Holy Spirit has incorporated us. And we know, we know that baptism is essential. That's my testimony. And I go back and revisit that and revisit it, reminding myself that I am in God's family. I've been immersed. The Greek word is baptizo. I've been, I've been immersed in like the picture of a ship sinking in the sea. It becomes one with it, if you will. I'm immersed into Christ. I become one with him. And I'm utterly convinced of it. It's not because I, I talk myself into it. It's because the Holy Spirit has convinced me. And my baptism is my testimony. We talked about communion. We're going we're gonna to have congregational communion this morning, first weekend of every month. And as we come to the Lord's table, we, we rehearse again the great truth of Christ's death and burial, why we're here. Why, why did I get up this morning? Why didn't I stay in that nice, warm, cozy bed under that comforter and hear the rain on the roof and just go, oh? I came this morning because I'm part of the body. And, and, and there's something in me that, that compels me to participate. Identify with Christ and his church. We talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit uh, shows us signs of, 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 of his presence. The very fact that I have a, a life that's different. I'm not the same person that I was before. I, there's a palpable difference. There's a big, huge difference. Some of you, when you became a Christian, somebody in your life has come up to you and said, you know, I think I like you better now than I did before. <laughs> that ought to be the case. Would you agree? People ought to be coming up to us and saying, you know, you're different, and I like the new you. A changed life. The Bible says you, you, we, we don't go on sinning. Paul says we can't in Romans chapter 6. It's impossible because you're not the same person. John says we don't go on sinning as we used to in 1 John. We find that we, we really do participate in fellowship. Fellowship with God, fellowship with His family. I love Jesus, I love His people. Sometimes it's hard, but nonetheless the Holy Spirit enables us, right? We find a, 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 new, a new sense of joy in our life. Even in the midst of trials, there's, it's just, there's a joy and certainly a love. There is a, a sense of 
inner confidence that I belong. I belong. Can't deny it. I, I just belong. I'm, I'm, I'm part of. It's just like you have this inner confidence. I was just trying to explain this the other day to somebody. I said, it's kind of like I'm a male. I'm a male. How do I know that? I just am. I just know. I know that I'm male. I'm not female. You can't even argue me out of being male. I just know down to the deepest part of my being, I'm a male. And the same thing is true of the fact that I, I'm accepted in Christ, that I'm part of God's family. I just know that I know that I know. This is how, this is how people who are martyred for their faith, you know, you're, you're, you're threatened with torture or whatever to recant, and you just say, I can't, I can't, I can't say no. It's like they, they torture you, say you're a woman. But I'm not. Am I making sense? Are you sure? Or am I just kind of going on and on up here? Assurance. He's there first and foremost to assure us. And we need assurance at every point of our life. And most particularly, when we fall short. Anybody fall short this week? A few of you? Especially when we fall short, that we haven't disqualified ourselves. We're still accepted. We need that assurance. Now, there's five words in the New Testament before we leave the subject of assurance. Because we have to leave it and move on to the other things, right? Before we leave this subject of assurance, there's five words in the New Testament that speak to that issue that I want to point out to you. Five words that the Apostle Paul uses to describe different aspects of the work of assurance, that work that the Holy Spirit does. Five aspects of literally belonging to the Spirit. The first is, is really a metaphor. It's a word, but it's a metaphor. And it's the word adoption. Is that a familiar word? Paul uses this word, and in the Greek, it's a, it's, a, it's a combination of two words, the word son and the word to, to take. And, the, and to literally uh, 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 translate the word, uh, you would say, a placing in the condition of a son. You're taking a person and placing them in the condition of a son. So now they become legally, with every right, a son or a, a child. We substitute the word adoption for that, that larger phrase. This was largely in the ancient Near East, and more particularly in the first and second century, this was more a pagan custom than it was uh, customary in the Jewish world. Uh, Jews typically did not practice adoption as we would understand it. Uh, the, the Romans really, really did practice it. And this is where Paul picked it up because he was a Roman citizen, thoroughly acquainted with Roman culture. And so you see this word, uh, salted throughout his letters. And, and everyone knew it. Now remember, Paul is, a, is the apostle to the Gentiles, right? So he's speaking their language and he uses this particular word of adoption. Uh, it really just is simply where a person might adopt the child or the children of another to make them his own or her own children. It was common practice, uh, by the way, for many of the Roman emperors to adopt their successor. So it wasn't necessarily that, that the, the children of the emperor would become the successor or the next emperor in line, but many of them were adopted uh, to become the succeeding emperors. And this is simply because the Romans understood this practice. Paul writes to the, to the Gentiles, he says, and this is what God does. He adopts us into his family. This is what he's done for us. Jesus died to redeem us. And he died to uh, literally adopt us into his father's family. 
And now because we are sons of God, God has sent and put his spirit into our lives, enabling us now to relate to God, no longer just as God, but now as what? Father. So that we can now actually say what? Abba, Abba Father. We can use those intimate family words. There is an impulse in us to want to experience intimacy with God rather than just simply treat him as the guy upstairs. You know, the neighbor in the upstairs apartment. We don't know his name. We don't know who he is. We just know there's somebody up there. No, this is, this is, this is more than just God. This is our Father now. And the Holy Spirit in us prompts us stimulates us to want to be intimate with him and to use those intimate words, Abba, Father. Am I making sense? Can you relate to any of this? Paul says this in Romans eight fifteen. He says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. This is one of our great dilemmas, is fear. We are constantly, constantly subject to a spirit of fear. Are we not? We're afraid of this. We're afraid of that. How many are afraid of being found out? You know what I'm talking about? We'd rather play it safe, not say anything. I'm not going to open my mouth to let people know how stupid I am. Right? Because I know so-and-so, they're always opening their their mouth, and we all know how stupid they are. I don't want to be thought like them. (laughs) We're simply afraid. We're afraid to risk. We're afraid to take a step. We're, we're, we're afraid of relationship. We're afraid of... We just... Our lives are governed by fear. And Paul says, look... He tells us in one place, look... The Spirit of God is in control if He's living in you. Here He tells us, you have not, you've not received, again, a spirit of fear... But you have received the spirit of sonship... And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. What an awesome, awesome reality. God knows us so intimately. He knows our deepest needs. He knows our greatest weaknesses. And he comes and he meets those needs every point. Look at Galatians chapter 4. This is why I asked you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. Verses 4 through 6. You might want to underline these in your Bible. These are great verses to memorize. But when the time had fully come, at the appointed hour, how many know that God's never too early and He's never late? Right on time, every single time. Do you ever feel like He's 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 late? God, have you taken note? Do you know? Clock's running out here, God. I love this. When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. What does it mean to be under the law? Under the law principle of having to justify ourselves. You have to keep the whole law. And the law says, if you don't keep me, I condemn you. This is what most of us feel when we, when we disobey God, when we break one of the commandments, when we do what's wrong. The law condemns us. And the enemy, Satan, comes and blows in our ear and, and aggravates that, doesn't he? To redeem those under the law. To redeem us from having to justify ourselves to be good enough to be acceptable to God. Because all of us at some point or other, and, and maybe even some this morning, still live under the illusion that you have to be good enough. All the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us through Christ Jesus. Romans 8.4. If you ever lose sight of this, go back to Romans 8.4 and just camp out there for a little while. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, 
the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an what? An heir. Whoa, is that cool? I love what he says in Ephesians. This is a great verse. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, to the same subject. He, meaning God, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. I I could spend probably a month on that verse. That that verse is so rich. But we're just going to go quickly. He's predestined us. When did he predestine? Before he ever created the heavens and the earth. He predestined you and I to be adopted as his sons. And why? What was the basis of it? What does he say? What does Paul say there? Simply because it pleased him. It just pleased him. God, why me? Well, it wasn't anything in you. It simply just pleased me. To show my mercy to you. Wow. That ought to drive us to our knees. Ought to drive us to our knees and say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. He's predestined us to be adopted as his sons. The spirit of Jesus entering our lives comes to us as God's adoption present. And he enables us to call God by that intimate family name that Jesus himself used, Abba, Father. Now, the Holy Spirit accomplishes all this, and he applies to us our sonship. And he applies to us not only our sonship, but all the privileges that flow from being a son. I'm in the family now. I have the full... I'm not just... I'm not a second-class son in the family. I have all the rights and benefits of a full son in the family. Isn't that great? Again, in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Paul writes, Now, if we are children... Or you can translate that preposition, if, is, is since... Since we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. Now, what exactly are we heirs to? Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 1, 4 says, we, are, we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, that God keeps in heaven for us. What, what are we heirs to? What's this inheritance? Well, we know, and, and typically we think in... in in material terms, don't we? Inheritance, money. Finally. <laughs> well, we do, we do know that God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. True? We do know that he's putting everything in subjection to Christ. That in effect, Christ is heir of a whole new creation. And if we're co-heirs, then we are also going to be heirs to a new creation. Is that, do you think that's what God's talking about? Paul says in another place that we will judge the world. We're right now created a little below angels, but we will judge angels. Is that what he's talking about? Good. It is possible, however, that the inheritance Paul has in mind is not something that God intends to bestow on us, The inheritance may be God himself. It may very well be that God himself is the inheritance of his children. Now, if you're a parent, you've heard this, and maybe you realize it in one way or another. We're always thinking we, we need to buy our kids stuff. Our kids want stuff. We buy stuff. When they really, really need, what? 
us. There is no child that isn't raised with loving, wise, attentive parents who would much rather have that than all the stuff. They would much rather have a parent who spends time with them, talking, listening, than a Game Boy. I promise you. Now, you may find that hard to believe, some of you. And some of the young people sitting here may go, I'd rather have the Game Boy. (laughs) That shows you how foolish you are, you know? Foolishness is in the heart of the child, right? But truly, we're made for relationship. And any, any, any child, any wise parent understands the best gift I can give my kid is who I am and who I'm becoming. Most people grow up and they, they grow up all messed up. We look back and we, we automatically blame, blame our parents. We say, well, you know, if you had a mother like I did. Or if I had had a father like you had, I wouldn't be so messed up. Well, you know, there is something to that, though we can't blame. But there's something to being in a, in a child's life, being constant an influence, you yourself growing and maturing, you have more to impart. And I say that just to suggest to you that, that God means for us to long for him, not stuff. We have, a, we have an example of this in the Old Testament. It's a great example. When God brought his, the people into the promised land, do you remember? He, he told Moses, he says, now I want you to divide the land and give each of the tribe their inheritance. So all the tribes got an inheritance, didn't they? Oh, that's right. In the, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verse 2, note this verse. The Levites were the only tribe that did not get a physical inheritance. The Levites are prophetic of who? The church. Priests to God. They had been given no inheritance among all the other tribes because the Lord himself was to be their inheritance. Wow. And godly... Godly individual Israelites could confidently affirm that God was their portion. Listen to Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire nothing on earth. God is my portion. that's when you know you're getting close. When you can say that, God, you're my portion. I don't need any. I got you. If I got you, I got everything. I don't need anything else. You're my everything. So, beloved, the, the Holy Spirit assures us of our adoption as children of God. The second word is seal. Paul tells us, and again, in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 13, that having heard the truth and having believed the good news of salvation, that they are included in Christ and have been sealed with the Holy Spirit who was promised long ago. So the, the prophets and the law testified to the sealing of the Spirit, to the giving of the Spirit. And now Paul tells the Ephesians that that's the case. They've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He tells this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Who makes us stand firm in Christ? God. How does God do that? By His Spirit living in us. He gives us the strength. I can do this. I can stand firm. How? Because He gives me the strength. 
It's God who makes you and us able to stand firm, stand strong in our faith. He anointed us. Now notice this. Set his seal of ownership on us. I love that phrase. Set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The word seal, think of this word as a property word. The word seal speaks of belonging. The Holy Spirit is given to us to identify us as belonging to Jesus. Just as a a, a wax seal on on an envelope in in the ancient East, when when, uh, people would send letters, they would seal them with a wax seal, identified as this is a letter belonging to me and I'm sending it to you. we got a, a wedding invitation. I'm doing a wedding next Saturday for Martin and for Terry. Would you stand up and just let the congregation applaud you? <laughs> See, if I marry you, you have to sit in the front row. <laughs> so, so we got the wedding invitation. Very beautiful. And there's a seal on the back. It's kind of like... To go from that lofty idea to this, uh, it's like when you brand an animal. <laughs> it's a sign. It's a, it's a seal that this animal belongs to me. He set his seal of ownership on us. Don't you love that thought? We belong to him. Wow. Do you remember in the book of Revelation, there were the the seven seals. And uh, heaven was searched. There's no one who was worthy to open the seals except one person. We're sealed. The third word that Paul uses of the Spirit, who assures Christians of their position, the third word is deposit. Or depending on the translation you may be reading, it may be pledge, it may be earnest, first installment. There are three places this word is used by Paul in the New Testament, and two of those places are used in conjunction with seal. Again, First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter one verse twenty-two. We just read that he set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Wow, that's an assurance, isn't it? Sealed, deposit. Encouraging. Ephesians chapter one verses thirteen and fourteen. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth and the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. There's a third place, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. This also says that God has given us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, if the word seal is a property word, the word deposit is a prophetic word. It looks forward. It looks forward to a greater gift in the future, while at the same time, it stresses the real gift in the present. I have the Holy Spirit as a deposit, but the deposit speaks to something in the future. Anybody ever put a deposit down on something? Yeah, you go to the store and say, I want that. I can't get it right now. I'm going to put a deposit, so put it in the back. It's mine. Put my name on it. Now, is it possible that you could change your mind? You go home and, you know, you have your three-day contemplation period. And you go back to the store and say, you know, I want my deposit back. I changed my mind. Isn't that so typical of us? Weak, fallible human beings. Is God like us? 
Do you suppose, because he's chose us from eternity past, do you suppose that he's had enough time to change his mind? Do you think he's going to change his mind? No, the Bible says he's not like us. He chose me from eternity past. He predestined me to be adopted as his son. And he did so knowing full well he would adopt me when I was at my very worst. And now that I'm better than I was before, do you think he's going to let me slip through his fingers and lose his deposit? I think not. The Holy Spirit is God's first installment, if you will, of the future salvation that awaits us. The part of the future we have now in the present and the pledge of the fuller life that is to come. The already and the not yet. In fact, modern Greeks use this very word to translate the phrase, translates the, the idea of engagement ring. I think it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture of God's work, the Holy Spirit's work, as our deposit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is our heavenly lover's engagement ring given to us. Isn't that beautiful? And we shall carry that engagement ring with us into, into God's future when we have the full wedding ring of the final union with Christ at that great marriage supper of the Lamb. It's all consummated. Did you get an engagement ring? Yeah. Is it beautiful? Were you so excited to get that? And there's no one going to pry it off your finger, right? No. Now you can hardly wait for the fulfillment of that, huh? Yeah. You see, beloved, at present, the Holy Spirit is the pledge of blessing to come. He is a real part of the age to come that is available to us here and now. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he will never be removed. That engagement ring, that deposit will never be taken back. The fourth word is first fruits. This is a word obviously coming out of the agricultural background of the ancient Near East. The idea is, if the first fruits are good, so will the main crop be good. How do you know the crop is going to be good? Because the first fruits are good. And that we're to offer the first fruits to God as a thank offering, as a step of faith that the rest of the crop is going to be good. The, the metaphor of first fruits is used in the New Testament three different ways. I'm going to just acquaint those with you. First of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus, his own resurrection, is seen as a first fruit from the grave and as a pledge of a greater harvest to come after when you and I who are in Christ will share his risen life. Secondly, Paul takes comfort from the idea of first fruits, the first fruits of Jewish believers in the first century, that at some point the whole nation of Israel will in God's time take and come and turn back to the Lord. So he takes comfort in that. Romans chapter 11, verse 16, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, in other words, the initial Jewish population that received Christ, the beginning of the church, then the whole batch is holy. So God hasn't given up on Israel. Romans, if you read Romans 9, 10, 11, you see that, that in effect kind of the Jews are on the back burner, so to speak, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then, then the, all Israel will be saved, we're told. So Paul takes comfort in that. He says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And the third use of first fruits is in our context. The Holy Spirit is given as a first fruit of the harvest God has in store for us. Romans 8, 23. We ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Wait a minute, I already thought I was adopted. What does he mean, waiting to be adopted? No, no, the, he's, he's, he's using that as a metaphor to talk about the full redemption. When we adopt a child, we have to go through this process with the court, but really we've adopted the child, haven't we? Waiting for the finalization of all that to happen. The redemption of our bodies. That's what he's talking about. But, but the Holy Spirit, again, is the first fruits. This is the confidence that the Spirit means to give believers. We are adopted. The Holy Spirit is, beloved, the first fruit of our adoption. Now, before we leave this aspect of the Spirit's work, this work of assurance, we have to remember this dynamic. There is an already and a not yet about the Holy Spirit's testimony of assurance. Already, not yet. Say that with me. Already, not yet. We see that reflected in the words that, that, that Paul uses. Um, in the word deposit. The deposit has been made, but the deposit speaks to the what? The not yet. It's not fully completed. God has not yet come back to finalize the purchase of his possessions. Us, true believers, for whom he has given the down payment of the Holy Spirit. And it is in the context of our future inheritance beyond death that Paul speaks of the Spirit as our deposit. That's the context. It always pointing to the not yet, to the not yet. Similarly, the word seal has a future look to it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 tells us that the Holy Spirit has sealed us, note this, in preparation for the day of redemption. The already and the not yet are united in that same verse when you look at it. To speak of a first fruits inevitably takes our minds to, again, the not yet, the first fruits. And this, again, is, ex- is explicit in Romans 8.23, as we read. Even our sonship. Think about this. Even our sonship, mediated to us by the Holy Spirit, has the same ambiguity about it, already, not yet. On the one hand, we can be sure that the Holy Spirit makes us sons. We receive the spirit of sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. But yet, on the other hand, we still have to wait for our final adoption at the second coming, Romans 8.23. And to match our assurance, our being so full of the Holy Spirit that He literally flows out of us, there is the other side of the picture. We also groan in the Spirit, or the Spirit groans through us. Verse 26 of Romans 8. I want to suggest to you that one of the greatest, if not the greatest, blessings in life. Now just pause. I want you to think. What is probably the greatest blessing in life? To know that my sins are forgiven. To know that God's guns of judgment aren't trained on me. To know that I am accepted. I want to suggest to you that is one of the greatest blessings in life. That I'm accepted by God. That I'm part of His family. All because I've done so well. No, because of Jesus. See, that's why... That's why the writer of Hebrews says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. It's all because of Jesus, not me. I'm saved by grace. Not because of anything I've done or not done. It's all grace. 
because of Jesus. To know, to know down deep in your knower. You have a knower, right? Assurance. I know, I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that God doesn't condemn me. I know that he doesn't beat me up. I know that. I know he loves me beyond all I can think or imagine. Isn't that great? That's assurance. That's assurance. And, beloved, when you have this assurance, it marks your life. There's six things that are going to be on the screen. They're not in your notes. I neglected to write them down to give them to you, so I'm going to give them to you now. But there's a space on the back of your notes, right? Debbie left a space for you back there. Would you give my secretary a hand, please? When you have this assurance, as we've been describing, beloved, it gives meaning to your life. It gives meaning to your life. When you have this assurance, it gives joy to living. When you have this assurance, it produces confidence in prayer. I know I know that I can come to my Father and bring my requests. I know I can. When you have this assurance, it produces boldness into your witnessing. You're not timid. You're not, you're not unsure. You're not You just know. You know. When you have this assurance, it gives strength under trial. When you have this assurance, it provides stability in following your calling. It provides stability. You know the way to go. You know the path. There's no doubt. Where you have not assurance, there is no stability. You're like back and forth. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad for the Holy Spirit? Would you give the Holy Spirit a hand of applause? (laughs) 